This is Salt and Spine. One of the main goals I had writing this book was to kind of represent a segment of people who feel like they've never been represented in food media in general. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, Stories Behind Cookbooks. And welcome to our very exciting fall 2023 season. We are so thrilled to be back on the air with a new collection of interviews and featured content from some of the most interesting voices in the cookbook world. And kicking things off this fall is Frankie Gaw, here to discuss his debut cookbook, First Generation. After his Midwest childhood and a short career in tech, Frankie found his way to food media, winning accolades and awards for his online presence, Little Fab. Boy. And now his debut cookbook, First Generation, described as a, quote, stunning exploration of identity through food, with recipes rooted in his childhood as a first-generation Taiwanese-American growing up in the Midwest. That's how we end up with recipes that are supremely inventive and strikingly photographed by Frankie himself. That's things like a Big Mac made with the lion's head meatballs, with cinnamon toast crunch butter mochi, or Cincinnati chili with hand-pulled noodles. Yum. And while the recipes are all craveable and creative, the heart of the book lies in a series of essays from Frankie on everything from his relationship to food as a first-generation American to embracing his sexuality. Frankie's prose draws you in, and it's hard not to feel moved by his stories. In this way, he pulls the curtain back on the things that have shaped him and his food. We've got a really wonderful chat today, and of course, we put Frankie to the test in our signature culinary game. Don't miss that. Plus, bonus content for those of you who subscribe to Salt and Spine on Substack, where you can hear Frankie read an excerpt from one of these essays. Hint, it's a great one, and it involves Olive Garden. And we've got recipes from First Generation, the Lapchung Corn Dogs, and stir-fried rice cake bolognese. So let's head now to our studio at San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, where Frankie Gaw joined us to talk cookbooks. Hi, Frankie. Thank Hi. you so much for joining us. <laughs> Thank you Salt for having Spine. me. Yeah. Yes. Thrilled to have you. Welcome back to San Francisco. Yes. We're Thank here you. in the mission recording. Um, and congratulations on your book, First Generation. Thank you. Yeah. Beautiful. Um, we're going to dive into it and talk about it a bit more. But first, we want to talk more about you, your life, how you got to where you are today, yeah. how you got to food. So yeah. um, we like to go back all the way to the very beginning cool. and grew up mostly in Cincinnati, Ohio, yes. right? Born in Texas, but then pretty much spent your yeah, childhood pretty, in Ohio. Yeah, I consider Ohio like my hometown. Uh-huh. Yeah, I don't have any like sort of like Texas Southern in me. So okay, sure. other than by on paper, so. certificate. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and your parents had immigrated to Texas uh, mm-hmm. from Taipei. in mid 80s yes correct and then you all settled in ohio and you spent your childhood there and really sort of as you write in the book uh sort of stereotypical suburban yeah american lifestyle and particularly when it comes to food right mcdonald's applebee's yeah i just i couldn't (laughs) handle that you called olive garden the shape and of anderson township (laughs) it really was i mean i think when i was growing up it was like it was literally the only fancy it was like the first time i had seen like a restaurant restaurant like a sit down where like people were like kind of dressed up yeah and to me like i hadn't i had no context to what restaurant culture even was so to me olive garden felt like that was like the tippy top like it felt so fancy at yeah. the time uh-huh. um, i even i mean still when i go today i still feel like it feels fancy it's, like i get that <laughs> yeah. nostalgia of like oh wow like i'm here at the olive garden so, right oh yeah. i remember when the one opened yeah. in my hometown and it was like the bar was imported from yeah, Italy and, yeah. Like, there was such drama around yeah it. there is a yes. lot of drama yes yeah. <laughs> So a lot of um, eating at restaurants, though, as a child, right? Your parents yeah. weren't cooking a lot. Yeah, I mean, my f- both my parents worked full time sure. and they worked pretty late, too. So most of the time we would either eat out 
probably like three or four times uh-huh. a week, or they would just cook really quick dishes. Like it was always about efficiency. And so it was either, yeah, fast food or it was like a 15 to 20 minute cook time yeah. for a dinner. Right, right. Yeah. You also mentioned just be- while we're on the topic of restaurants, Skyline yeah. Chili, which I think yes. a lot of people, if you haven't spent much time in Ohio <laughs> yeah. or certain parts of yeah. the Midwest, don't really understand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Skyline, I mean, yeah. So Skyline is this, uh, I feel like it's a Cincinnati staple. Uh-huh. They're known for their chili, which is, I think most people think of chili as like really chunky, sure. a lot of like tomatoes and beans. And Cincinnati chili is very, um, it's almost like a sauce. So there's not like chunks of beans or vegetables. It's like straight up meat sauce and to me i feel like it's it almost tastes like a a mole in a sense like it has Uh, like savory but also sweet notes and there's like a lot of like spice from like cinnamon i don't know if there's cinnamon but there yeah it feels like cinnamon like yeah like nutty almost and yeah I feel like some people will probably say it's blasphemous to call it like, like call it like mole, but to me it has mole vibes and I've always enjoyed it. And yeah, they add a giant pile of like neon orange cheese. That's like delicious. Three pounds of cheese on top. Yeah. (laughs) So it's, it's unlike any sort of chili or chili pasta dish. (laughs) Yeah. 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 So So you're eating a lot, you know, restaurant food, classic American Mm -hmm. food. I know your grandmother's had a a pretty strong culinary influence on you. Is that at that point in your life? Cause you don't start cooking until you're in college yeah right, yourself yeah, yeah yeah i mean i think so i i felt like i was really lucky in that like both my grandmas both on my mom's side and my dad's side cooked uh-huh. and so it was something that i was always surrounded by like i was always surrounded by their home-cooked food like whenever they were visiting and so usually like they would be around during like the school year so like sometimes my grandma would stay with us and live with us for like you know, four or five months at a time, like every year. So anytime she was over, it was almost like my Taiwanese culture was like kind of brought into our house. Like it was in the forefront, whereas usually like our household was very much like an American household. And so she was almost like my like, I don't know, like my portal to a place that I had never been to before, but yeah. um, had like still a strong connection to. So, and so you're getting those bursts of yeah of culinary influence from yeah. her, but not yet cooking and not yet cooking. You yeah. go to Carnegie Mellon, right? And at mm-hmm. some point in your college yes. time, decide yes. like you want to try cooking. What what prompts that for you? Yeah, I mean, I think honestly, it was. Well, so our our college feed was was pretty average, and okay. so I think it was more of like a, a survival thing of like, oh, we sh- we should probably cook if we want to like eat some decently healthy sure. food. Sure. And I got lucky in that I had a roommate. She was she I think grew up cooking, and so she had like a lot of cooking experience. So when I lived with her, she like introduced me to like avocados for the first time. I had never had an avocado, or okay. she like cooked mushrooms, and uh-huh. I had never like really eaten mushrooms like like in the way that she had cooked them. And so I feel like seeing her like pull together all these different flavors, like in our like tiny little kitchen, I was like, oh, wow, like this is something I can do. Like, yeah, I think I always saw cooking as like this very aspirational thing because when I saw my grandmas do it, it was always this like whole situation where they would grocery shop and there'd be so much food. And to me, it felt almost unattainable. I just like love to eat it. Yeah. And so when I saw my roommate cooking, I was like, oh, that's I feel like that seems reasonable. Like I can I can try this. And so that's kind of what kickstarted my journey in terms of like home cooking. Okay. Yeah. 
So you, you start cooking more at home, you take a little bit of an interest there, yeah. and then you, you graduate college and go and start working, move to San Francisco and start working yeah. in UX design, yes. right? Yeah. yeah. Facebook yeah. and Airbnb and some other startups. Yeah, those are my, yeah, I, I came to San Francisco purely for a job. And uh-huh. I, I knew I always wanted to to not go back to the Midwest. Okay. <laughs> like, I think I just like, sure. I mean, as much as in hindsight, you know, the Midwest was a great place to grow up in a sense, but... I think I always just wanted to see what else was out there. Like sure. it, the Midwest was always such a, like a homogenous place in terms of like culture. And so yeah. to be like in one of the coasts, I was like, oh yeah, like I, I want to see more and eat more and, yeah. and experience like, yeah, a new place in my twenties. So yeah, makes yeah. sense. Totally. Yeah. So you're, you're living here in the Bay area. I think uh, you're working at Facebook mm-hmm. and you're 23 and you have this sort of pivotal moment yes. in your life, right? Yeah. Where your dad is diagnosed with lung yeah. cancer. Yeah. And decide to kind of put things on hold, put your mm-hmm. career on hold a little bit, mm-hmm. um, and go back to Ohio for mm-hmm. s- for some time. Mm-hmm. And you write in the book that, and then your dad passed away a couple yeah. of years after that. And yeah. you write in the book that it really sort of took that moment and that process yeah. for you to start to look a lot more inward and mm-hmm. think about, in your words, you know, understanding who you are and where your family came from, and mm-hmm. in particular through the language of food. Yes. Right? Yeah. Totally. Yeah. I think. It was it was definitely like a huge moment for me in terms of like growing up in like I don't know doing like adulting in a way like right. I I just remember up until that point like a lot of my life and what I considered success was around my job and like I mean I was in tech you know for myself and but also really to just kind of like I don't know I was almost like doing what I felt like society was almost like wanting me to do or like what culture expected. Like what success looks like is this, you know, flashy title and this flashy job that you can then tell other people that you have. And it it almost became like my identity that I adopted for myself. And that's what, you know, I would tell other people to, to make myself feel proud when then I think when my dad was diagnosed and when he was close to passing away, I just, I think it really made me reevaluate a lot of my priorities. Um, like I remember this really specific moment when he was in hospice and he was in his, on his bedside. And I remember his coworkers coming in to, to visit and speak uh-huh. with him. And I just remember when they would come in, like all they would really talk about was just like who he was as a person and like how kind he was to them. And, um, sure. like how much of a friend he was to them in their work environment. But no one ever was like, oh yeah, like, you know, I'm going to remember you for all these patents that you did or the, you know, yeah. the projects that you like shipped or like none, no one even mentioned work like one time. Like, and it made me realize like, I don't know, like at least the things that I thought mattered really, you know, in the grand scheme of life when someone is looking back on their life and when they're evaluating their friendships, like, yeah. you know, your title and your the how much money you make and like all these things that like feel super important at the at least for me at the time like felt really trivial so I think sure that was like a really big moment for me because then it made me kind of reset my own priorities and expectations of like what my purpose was and what I should be doing with my time in my life so yeah yeah and it's a little bit of the through line in your book really because yeah. you write so much about your childhood and your upbringing and trying to sort mm-hmm. of and, and what the priorities were which yeah. I think many of us learn priorities later in life yeah, because totally. the toxic culture of middle school is hard for so many people in yeah. high school and like yeah. but really trying to conform mm-hmm. and to like fit yeah. into this like predominantly white 
place yeah. you were living in sure. the Midwest. I think I read that you had one other Asian person in yeah, your school, my high school, right? Yeah. Out of a thousand people. Yeah. Uh, or roughly a thousand. So it's really kind of the Sioux line. Is that when you start to, I know that, and then a year later you come out to your mom. Mm-hmm. Um, is that kind of a similar process of like that, yeah. that kind of prompts some of that introspection in terms yeah. of your sexuality too? Totally. Yeah. I think, yeah, it's like when my, when my dad passed, like, I think it just made me reevaluate everything. I think, yeah the first thing that I started thinking about was like my sexuality. And I think him passing away really kind of made me realize that like, no, life is too short to live for other people. And then I was just like, you know, this has been, this has been stuck with me. Something I've been suppressing for so long. Like, you know, I think it's time to kind of just live my life and um, see what happens. And I think that being able to come out, I think unlocked a lot of other things for me. Like, you know, looking back at like my identity as an American and as an Asian and like thinking about what are other parts of me that I've also been suppressing. And I think the Taiwanese part of me was something like throughout my childhood and even in high school, like was something that, you know, in the same way that my sexuality was hidden. Like, I think Mm -hmm. that was something that I suppressed in order to adapt in the environment I was living in. And so, yeah, like I think a lot of things just started to kind of come into place for me in terms of like who I was and where I wanted to go. Like once, like, yeah, once I experienced that like huge personal trauma. And yeah. Yeah. Just right. kind of went from there. So, right. And that's about the time then in terms of embracing your Taiwanese heritage, yeah. that you start traveling to spend yeah. time with both of your grandmothers, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. you'll, you fly to visit them and spend yes. time cooking with them. And at the time you're, you know, taking videos and yeah. like documenting yeah. this, right? And yeah. do you know at that point what this is all going to sort of become? I mean, it co- becomes a number of things that I'll yeah. build, but at that point, is, is there a goal in mind for you There's... or just really just spending time with them? Yeah, it was really just... For for me at the time like there was never a goal other than i just want to learn these recipes and connect with my my family and my culture again because yeah for me like food was like when i thought about it food was kind of like the one thing that really brought me a sense of comfort and it was the one thing i could always rely on and so i was just like yeah i just like want to i want to eat and cook these and be able to make these things that i've had since i was a kid and as a way to kind of I don't know, bring a sense of comfort for myself when I'm home and Mm -hmm. when I'm, you know, not feeling so great or when I'm kind of like, yeah, just wanting a piece of home. And so that was really my only goal at the time. And yeah, so that's why I just started documenting everything on video so I could just like learn for myself and cook. Sure. And how does that translate then to you? You launch a blog, you launch an Instagram, like you start putting recipes out into the world. How does it go from that to to? Yeah. Becoming a content creator. Totally. Yeah. I, yeah, I was basically because I had all this content, like I was starting to just like film a lot. So I had a lot of videos and I've always just loved photography in general. Mm -hmm. Like that's always been one of my passions. And I just thought, oh, it'd be cool to like document the finished dish too that I made. Like once I've like, you know, mastered the recipe and I start, I started taking photos of it and I just started putting it on Instagram just for my friends. And I think another big piece of the documentation and the like me really wanting to to style the shots and making them look good was I just remember at that time being being aware of like food media and like seeing all these like like beautiful spreads. And I always like wonder, I was like, oh, like I, why don't I ever see like, I don't know, like Asian grandma food on Uh on these kinds of uh, 
on these spreads or in these like magazines. Like, yeah. like I just always felt like there was like such a strong Eurocentric presence in food media. And so like when I started photographing my grandma's food, I was like, oh, like I kind of want to like challenge the status quo and like shoot these these recipes in the same way that you know food media does because i have the skill sets to do it and so i almost wanted to kind of like show that i don't know like this grandma food is worthy of this type of of photographic spread and yeah the like design and the like kind of care that you know i was typically used to seeing for for non-grandma food and non-asian food so yeah so yeah so that was kind of like my challenge to myself really it was almost like a creative prompt and that's kind of where the Instagram started and then the blog can kind of just spun out of people starting to take a notice of the photos and wondering like oh how do I make this food too yeah so it was almost like a response to people wanting the recipe so it was just like I was like okay I'll just put the recipes on this blog and then sure that's kind of where it grew from there and you do it uh, you do it all under the umbrella of little fat boy yes. <laughs> which is the name of the blog which is yeah. your, your handle yeah um which is a, a, an endearing nickname right yeah from your family from yeah when you were people younger. yeah people are always like oh why is it called little fat boy but yeah <laughs> uh yeah like I go to the bank and I'm like hey can I deposit <laughs> little right? fat little they're like, what is yeah. This? yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, sure. no, it's a term of endearment my family yeah. always gave me just because I used to love just eating dumplings all the time. And so, yeah, the Chinese term translated into little fat boy. And yeah. that's where it came from. And you start to see great success. I mean, obviously, they, your audience just grows mm-hmm. and like there's a lot of connection to your content. Yeah. And then you have a few sort of moments where you get some real intense recognition yeah. right you were um named bog of the year yeah if we're a magazine yeah. and i know there was also a moment where christina tosi from uh, milk bar fame yeah. like um sort of fangirled over your cinnamon toast crust yes. butter mochi <laughs> yes right yes totally <laughs> so it, it's, it's like doing really well it's contents performing great yeah. when do you decide that a, a cookbook is the next step for you yeah so I mean, a cookbook has always been like on my bucket list. So it's always been in the back of my mind, but it was never something that I thought I could do. Like it was always a dream, but I just, I just never thought I would be able to do it. So I had actually, so once I had Juan Savor, um, I had been approached by a couple publishers after that. And they were like, Hey, like, have you ever thought about writing a cookbook? And at the time I, I, um, I thought about it, but then I had, I said, no, like I was like, I'm not ready to do one but mm-hmm. i think that the recognition from those publishers really kind of sparked the idea of like oh like it this dream isn't so far away like i thought it was something i would be doing like after i retired from tech or something like sure, that sure. and the fact that they had approached me already i was like oh like maybe i could do this and so it kind of i kept that in the back of my mind as i was like working in tech and i it i think i was like passively marinating on what this book could be yeah and so by the time like the pandemic rolled around, um, I was cooking much more. And I think I had also just like developed my voice more and my point of view much more by then. And so my now agent reached out like a couple years after that, um, after those publishers did. And then by then I was like, oh, okay, like I think I could do something. Like I've been thinking about it for two years and I think I have something to say. So that's yeah. when I was like, okay, yeah, like let's let's pursue this and see what happens. So. So you decide to to embark on the project then, yeah. and you're you're writing the book. Talk yeah. up a little bit about the process of putting this together because it's a yeah. a big 
piece of work to build a cookbook. And yeah. I, I know as you were writing it, you also lost your your paternal grandmother, yes. who was really crucial yeah. and instrumental in yeah. your culinary career. And yeah. the first essay in the book actually is is about her and opens yeah. up with that. So talk about a, a, the process a bit of building the book and yeah. what that looked like. Yeah, the process was, I mean, I had never done anything like this before. So sure. I, I I had no clue what I was getting into. Yeah. Maybe that was like a good thing that like I yeah. didn't have any context to how, how a book is built. But um yeah i basically i got my deal my my cookbook deal was signed in i think uh 2020 like end of 2020 and then i started writing january 2021 and so i basically had eight months to turn in my manuscript and so they were kind of just like yeah like go write the book and (laughs) i was like wait you don't have check-ins like i'm so used to like the product design process where it's like you literally have like a critique every single week and you're like changing things and yeah. it's like very everyone's very hands-on whereas the book they were just like do whatever you want and come back and yeah, want. Just and I, was like, us, yeah. I was like oh my god <laughs> so yeah. um i basically yeah the process was i i started with just um i printed out calendars for every month okay <laughs> and then i knew i had a list of all the recipes more or less of like what i wanted in the book uh-huh. just from the book proposal process and yeah. so I knew the dishes I wanted to make. And so I basically had to like map out every dish to a day in the year. And then I kind of organized every month by chapter. Sure. And the other piece of it was I knew I wanted to photograph the book myself um, just because like I've always loved photography. And I knew like I wanted to be able to kind of drive the creative direction of the book. So it was just kind of a mix of me scheduling out when I was recipe developing then also shooting the book. So I was basically shooting as I was recipe developing, which more or less was not efficient. But uh, (laughs) like towards the end, I basically stopped photographing and I just developed the rest of the book and then I shot the rest of the recipes. But I think the process was, it was kind of like trial and error. Like I, I think I went in knowing I wanted to write a book about my, my Asian American experience, but I'm like naturally very much an introvert. Like I just like, sure. I even with my friends, like I don't share that much. Uh-huh. Like I'm very like, everyone always says like, oh, like you're so good at deflecting. Like they'll <laughs> ask me a really personal question and I'll yeah. just like say one word and then like ask them the question back Yeah, and not be able to reveal anything about myself. And so I think I was kind of doing that when I was writing the book at first. Like okay. I was being very like surface level of sure. like, oh yeah, like I grew up in Ohio, like, you know, I was the only Asian kid, but then I never like really went into like the whys or like the feelings I was going through. And so when my friends would read the first drafts, they're very much like, this doesn't sound like you at all. Like you're not really showing us like who you are and why this book should exist. Like if you're going to write an Asian American book, like you need to kind of really dive a little bit deeper. And so it took me a couple months to really learn how to write in a way that I could be vulnerable and like, you know, kind of let a lot of my stuff go. And so there's a certain point where I started writing and I was just like, okay, like I'm just going to put all my emotional baggage like out there and yeah. like whatever happens, happens. And so that's when I, that's when I actually wrote the, the rice and noodles essay. It was the first thing I wrote okay. was just like me kind of reflecting on, you know, my identity in Ohio, but also living in San Francisco and, yeah, I knew I wanted to just kind of like push myself with the writing. And I was like, if I'm going to like be vulnerable, I might as well just like go all the way. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, it was, 
a long this is a long-winded way of saying <laughs> the process was kind of like up and down and left and right and yeah I just figured it out as i went so yeah and and it is so deeply personal yeah. and and vulnerable and yeah. just like your writing is, is so beautiful you. you also one of the essays is this really touching coming out letter to your mm-hmm. dad yeah um can you yeah. talk about the decision to include that like is that something yeah. that you regret not being able to come out to him and wanted to put it out in this way or how what how did that feel like it fit into the, the book yeah i so i it was that was like one of the later things i put in okay i yeah it's like i feel like i i knew i wanted to put in something to my dad i just didn't know what that was gonna look like because for me, like the book is very much about identity. And like, mm-hmm. I, I wanted to put in not only just pieces about myself as an Asian American, but I also wanted to speak to, yeah, like the LGBT community, because that's sure. very much a part of this journey. And I feel like the book is very much a celebration of like the messiness of like figuring yourself out, you know, yeah. in your 20s and yeah. in your childhood. And so... Um, I don't know, just knowing that narrative, um, like I was like, I, I feel like I need to put something that kind of speaks to, you know, where I'm at with myself and also like what I would want to say to my dad if he were around. And so that's kind of what jumpstarted that, that letter. And yeah, the way I wrote it, like I, the letter was almost like my, it was like my draft. Like I was, I was just writing it like that just to kind of get all my thoughts out sure. before like writing the actual essay. And then when I wrote the letter, I was like, oh, like this feels, um, I don't know. I was like, this feels representative of what I want to communicate. Like, I don't need to kind of distill this anymore. And you so I kind of kept that first person. So I just yeah. kept it. Yeah. yeah. And I, and I gave it to a couple of friends to read it and, um, and then they started to cry. I was like, oh shit. <laughs> okay. okay. Yeah. So I was like, okay, I feel like it resonates. So it's very powerful. Yeah. So then yeah. I, yeah. So then I kept it and, um, yeah. And I, I, I was excited about it too, because I was like, oh, like, I feel like I've never seen like, um, a letter in a cookbook before. I don't know. It just felt very different. And I, I kind of yeah. liked the fact that it, I don't know, like something you would find in a memoir or something that's not a cookbook, but it yeah. just happens to be in a cookbook. Right. So, And as a, a, a more introverted person, yes. as a person who's like being so vulnerable and opening, so yeah. how does it feel to have this out in the world, to be, you know, having these yeah. conversations, talking about it? Is that yeah. a, a jarring experience? Does it, it feel good? It, it can be. I It does. Um, it does feel jarring at times. Like I, because the book, like I, I wrote it almost like, the experience of writing the book almost felt like a, a school project or something okay. like yeah. because I was just by myself in my house writing this yeah. like and it was also the pandemic. So right. we weren't having people over to like recipe test or like, you know, right. try dishes like we were all just I was just doing it like my boyfriend and I just like tasting things and yeah. discussing and it was just like really the two of us. Sure. And then, you know, a couple emails here and there to friends. But the experience of like creating the book and photographing the book was so isolated. And so. I think now having people read it and like uh, reaching out about, you know, what resonates with them around stuff that feels like I've kept in myself for so long that I thought never would, you know, come out at all, let alone to the world. Like, yeah, that has been definitely a a jarring experience. But I think it's also been really positive. And I feel I feel proud of uh, the fact that I put that stuff out there because I think just seeing the messages of people who are like, oh, yeah, like. You know, I'm also, you know, gay or I'm also um, from an immigrant family and a lot of that, the stuff you've written resonates with me and yeah. I've never seen this before. 
or this reminds me of home like that i feel really grateful for because i think one of the main goals i had writing this book was to kind of represent um a segment of people who feel like they've never been represented in food media in general so sure yeah you you have this essay too called Dinners with Anthony Porowski. Yes. <laughs> Anthony of Queer Eye. Yes. yes. Uh, who also wrote a, a blurb he for did. your book. So he did. Um, this is less a question. I think yeah. it's just I think it's one of the best pieces of food writing that I've read this wow. year. The, oh my god. The dinners <laughs> with Anthony um essay. And I won't give it all away because yeah. I think people should really read it. It's yeah. it's really beautiful. Thank you. Um and it's hilarious and yeah. sort of this like fever dream story. Yes. It's very yeah. emotional. Like I I found myself very emotional reading it yeah how did you like taking that one as an example yeah. and talking about your writing process how did you sort of approach crafting these essays that i think are just so light and funny and yeah not serious while at the same time just touching on this like incredibly deep exploration of your childhood and your life but also mm-hmm. like the thing we haven't talked a ton about is like really getting into your family's past yeah too and your, your sort of cultural heritage yeah a generation and another generation above you. Yeah. So I, I, I guess the process of the essays was I, I actually left those towards the end of the okay kind of the cycle of, of writing. So I, I knew in the back of my mind, I wanted to write an essay for every chapter opener. So I had that in mind as I was recipe developing. And I felt like as I was cooking these foods too, like it would really bring up all these like memories and these scenes that, you know, I hadn't thought about in so long. And sure. so I think I would take mental notes of, of those memories as I was cooking. And then when it came time to write, like I, I just sat down and I was like, okay, I'm going to like write all these essays all at the same time. But for me, like I, I've always loved pushing myself creatively. And so I knew with the essays, like I knew each essay, I wanted it to be like some sort of different narrative structure mm-hmm. just yeah. to, I don't know. Like, I think I've, I've always loved, um, f- fictional books. Like I love fiction and I've, I love storytelling and I always find like the books that have like taken the traditional fiction novel and like kind of made them into their own thing. Like I've always found those so interesting, whether it's like the narrative structure or the way they tell the story or the perspective that it's told from, like that's something that's always interested me from a writing perspective. And sure. so I knew I wanted to kind of like do that for myself. And so, um, so that's why there's like a letter and there's like yeah. um, another one. It's like a conversation with my grandma when mm-hmm. she has dementia. And, mm-hmm. um, and then the one that you, you described the last one that to me is like the climax of the book. It's yeah. like a, it's like a fever dream. It's like a literal yeah. dream that I had that I wrote into an essay. <laughs> is it really? Yeah. So okay. I didn't know if you just sort yeah. of conjured this or oh, you, yeah, you actually no. had a dream. I had, like this. I legit had a dream. Wow. This dream of th- this essay. Wow. Um, and I woke up literally at four in the morning, like from it. And I was like, Oh my God, like this feels like an essay for the book. And I wrote, wrote it all down in my Apple notes and then went back to bed. And then the yeah, next sure. day I wrote the whole essay. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And is that what you sent to Anthony to get a blur? No, I, well, I, no. I sent him <laughs> the whole, the whole book. Thing. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I've actually never asked him about like what he his reaction to that. To that. The essay, yeah. yeah. But yeah. Um, yeah, maybe one day we'll see. <laughs> one day. Sure. Yeah. Um, let's talk about a couple of the recipes. So yeah. I think um, obviously folks can expect that you're really merging these like American classics of mm-hmm. your childhood with Asian and Taiwanese flavors yeah um a couple of my favorites like the lap chung corn mm-hmm. dogs yeah. are so interesting to me how yeah. you de- how you came up with that concept yeah. and also i just i to name another one i loved the stir-fried rice cakes with yeah. the bolognese sauce yeah. like yeah. such a, a marriage of those two mm-hmm. cuisines 
beans. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, how did you sort of approach some of these recipes? Are they things that you had you know developed previously to writing the book and you knew you wanted to include? And if mm-hmm. so, either way, I guess, how did you sort yeah. of like, how do you bring things together in a recipe development way? Yeah, totally. So I think with those recipes in particular, like I think with every recipe, I kind of had, I always had like this top level question in my mind, which was like, does this recipe that I've developed, does it make me remember something or does it give me a sense of nostalgia? Because uh-huh. I knew this book was very much like a nostalgic book um, because it talks about family and yeah. intergenerational kind of passing down of food. And so that was always the question that I came up with. And I think like with the corn dogs in particular, like for me, that was just like sparked from a memory that I've always had as a kid, you know, coming home from school. Like my parents always bought me like those giant Costco sized sure. boxes of corn dogs. Yes. So I used to always, um, yeah, like eat those after school and watch Mari like on yeah. the couch <laughs> yeah. for like an right. hour. And I did this for like three years straight. Right. So, <laughs> so like I always, I used, like I tried to find like really specific and colorful memories of food as like the jumping off points for, um, for dishes. So yeah. like with the corn dog, I was like, Oh, like how cool would it be to use something so American and use it as a vehicle to celebrate like a, like a Taiwanese or an Asian American or an Asian, like traditional Asian, sure. you know, uh, ingredient, like yeah. a Chinese sausage right. or a Taiwanese sausage. And so, um, so that's like how that recipe was developed or even with like the stir fried rice cake bolognese, like I'm so used to eating like rice cakes during the holidays with soy sauce, with vegetables. And, um, I've always found that like um, Asian food and Italian food have so many like parallels, like with ravioli and dumplings and noodles, like in sauces. And so, yeah, I think for me, it was just like this natural marriage of like two cuisines that I love so much. Like I've always loved Italian food, probably because it has so many similarities. And so I was just like, oh, it would be so interesting to just try and see if this rice cake will fit with a bolognese sauce. And when I did it, I was like, oh my God, it's like, yeah, it reminds me of two completely different things, but all at the same time. And so I was like, I have to, I have to put this in here. So I love that. And, and you probably don't have a more classic American food than a Big Mac. Yeah. Right? So, yes. so you give us a new Big Mac yes. <laughs> in the book. Uh, and instead of a beef patty, you're using your grandmother's recipe for lion's head meatballs. Yes. Yeah. I remember as a kid. So that one's funny because like as a kid, like we would have lion's head meatballs just um, like when our families would get together, like it was always this very like centerpiece dish. And I remember specifically as a kid always thinking, Oh, like these remind me of Big Macs. Like, I think these would be so good with bread, like on a, on a burger bun. And that's a memory that's always stuck out to me. So I knew from the beginning that I wanted to try that recipe out of like, Oh, wait, if we make this a Big Mac, we'll be good. (laughs) So it's super sacrilegious, but yeah, (laughs) to both cultures, but that's okay. (laughs) It looks incredible. I I was like, I enjoy it. So um, I thought it was just like a funny play on, on food. Totally. Yeah. I also appreciate that you are such a cereal aficionado. You even include a little, um, um, a sidebar sort of on the perfect childhood menu yeah. as imagined by a young version of yourself. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and have a number of sweets. There's Reese's Puffs brownies. Mm-hmm. There's uh, Cap'n Crunch and Pecan shortbread cookies, which yes. I'm definitely going to be making <laughs> soon. Um, I That's not a question. I just love that. <laughs> I you, also yeah. love cereal. Yeah. Um, and, and the way that you just incorporate some lightheartedness into the book too, like you yeah. have these illustrated guides to some mm-hmm. recipes in the process. Yeah. There's a fluffy cornmeal white bread. Yes. How did you ap- decide to approach it in this way? And if folks haven't seen it yet, it's sort yeah. of an illustrated step by step. And you have these hilarious little like quotes on things. Like there's <laughs> yeah. one that says like, I'm smooth and very bouncy like a butt to describe yeah. <laughs> like the, w- the state that the dough should be in at that point. Yeah. 
Yeah. How'd you decide to format it in that way? Yeah. So I feel like I've always been a very visual learner. Um, Like I I studied industrial design. So that's where a lot of the drawings come from. I've always loved to draw. Did you draw those illustrations? Yeah, Yeah, I drew those. So um, in industrial design, when you're like... um, when you're describing like how a product works, like if it's like, um, I don't know, like a kitchen tool or something like that. And when you're designing it, you have to do these like really visual storyboards to kind of illustrate how someone might like hold something sure. or like use it in context. And so, um, so I kind of took that and I was like, okay, like what if I applied that to a recipe, especially with like a recipe, like with dough, for example, like I feel like there's always instructions that are like, oh, like fold it, letter wise right. and then in thirds and like <laughs> yeah. my head just gets like starts to spin and yeah so that's why for me i was like oh like it'd be really interesting to be able to like use this kind of like storyboarding diagramming type of illustration and put it towards something that might be complicated and yeah. just visualize it because i think it will just make it easier for people and and then in terms of like the little quotes and like the um the quips of like oh i'm a butt like (laughs) i think that's just like i don't know that's just like my sense of humor in a sense coming through like i wanted to have some personality like i didn't want it to feel so technical yeah and um, i think that's like the way my grandma would cook too like she was always she always cooked by feel and every time she would knead dough like she would always say like oh you have to knead it 500 times until it feels like a butt so it was just like a natural way to kind of like um, bring in some metaphors that, you know, our family uses and put them into um, into the illustration. So. Yeah. I want to ask, I think you know, your book is titled First Generation, yeah. which I love the title. Yes. And I think we've seen in the past number of years, like mm-hmm. a growing subgenre in the cookbook industry of yeah. first generation immigrants writing about the immigrant America experience. Yeah. I think Priya Krishna kind of did yeah. that a few years yes. ago with yeah. Indianish. And then totally. even this year, we've had Eric Kim's Korean yeah. American book. I love his book, yeah. Such a great book. Yeah. Um, Ileana Masonette's mm-hmm. Puerto Rican book just yeah. came out. So we're starting to see this like... Mm-hmm increased attention and I think a, an overdue opportunity yeah. for first and second sometimes generation mm-hmm. Americans to write about their yeah. their story yeah, and their totally. recipes is that a genre you think we're going to see continue to grow like what do, what do you sort yeah. of see as next for for those stories yeah I really hope so yeah. like I think I know my book would not exist had I not seen books like Priya's or books like Eric's because I think when I was coming up like I always saw Asian cookbooks as these almost like encyclopedias of like what um, Asian cooking was supposed to be. And like those were the only types of books in terms of like for people of color that were allowed to exist were just like historical documentations of, you know, what this culture's food was supposed to be. Sure. And so I think seeing books like Priya's and Eric's, it's like, oh, like you don't have to be this like quote unquote expert on your culture. Like I think it's really cool to see all these people who have these very personal perspectives come up with these books because, um, because yeah, like I feel like we hadn't, we haven't seen those stories before. Like I think my book specifically, like I wanted to write something that um, celebrated the idea that you don't have to necessarily know where you fit in terms of your culture. Like you don't have to feel super Taiwanese or feel American and that it's okay to be in that in-between space. And like you can write a book and have recipes based on that perspective as well. And so I I do think, yeah, that there will be a lot more books that are, that are like this out there. And I hope, you know, I think part of the goal of this book too is like, I hope people see it and they are encouraged to write about their own stories and, and want to like write their own cookbooks about their 
their heritage and their background and their own personal experiences. So, yeah. Yeah. I hope so too. You mentioned a couple authors in the book and in, in these yeah. interesting ways that I love yeah. um, where you sort of contrast ex cookbook author or TV show yes. <laughs> host with your grandmother or yeah. one of your grandmothers. Yeah. You do it with, um, there's a roasted carrot dish that yeah. looks incredible. And you write, I'd like to think this dish was conceived by my grandma while hanging out with Samin Nostrat in yeah. her Berkeley kitchen. <laughs> yeah. Both are drinking glasses of red wine while eating the carrots yeah. right from the baking sheet with their fingers. Yeah. Carrot bliss indeed. <laughs> and you do a similar thing with Ina Garten yeah. on another recipe. Yeah. Can you talk about, are there other, like those feel like two authors that are important yeah. or influential to you as yeah. in your career are there others too that that you really turned to when you were writing the book or as you started to cook yourself yeah i mean i think the one i mean eric we mentioned earlier like yeah. i think he was one of the first people i saw um that i felt like the most seen like i was like oh i've never seen someone who was like me like yeah. he was writing from an asian american perspective um him being korean and also him talking about his identity being gay like that was something yeah. i'd never seen especially from him coming from food 52 and being in like a mainstream media sure position and so i was like oh wow like that makes it feel like it's possible for me to tell my story so i think he's definitely like someone who i remember seeing when i would be like in my like little desk working on my my design stuff at facebook and reading his articles on the side yes, like i remember yeah. seeing that <laughs> and being like oh wow like like you know there's space for me here too um yeah yeah ina garden obviously i mentioned yeah. um samin i mean even like martha stewart these are yeah. people that i feel like when i was a kid like i would just see on the on the tv and you know these are the people who you know taught me that like an oven was an oven like we use an oven as like pot storage so right. <laughs> i was like oh wow like, you can cook things in the oven so yeah. i think that influenced a lot of the like love i have for just like classic american food like roast chickens and roast yeah. vegetables and you know all these things that you typically associate with american food so yeah I love that. Well, we always end with little games. Yeah. So I thought today we would play a game that I'm calling Frankie's Americana. Oh, sweet. Okay. <laughs> um, so you've got some some ingredients here, which I'll explain in a minute. Yeah. But I'm hoping you can draw from these ingredients and tell okay. us. Uh, we're going to pretend that you're sort of back in your UX design role, but from a culinary perspective. Okay. So you've got to put together recipes for some classic American restaurants. Okay. The Olive Gardens, the Applebee's oh, okay, of the world, right? Okay. And tell us what you might put together if this is what you had to work with. So okay. vegetables, proteins, flavors are like herbs and spices right. and secret ingredients are just a mix of other things. Okay. So we can kind of play it like chopped style. You can yes. draw one from each and that's what you have to work with and okay. tell us how that could come together into a okay. dish and where you might serve it. Okay, cool. <laughs> how does that sound? That sounds great. Okay. All right, should I start with? Yeah. I could just take one of each. One of each, yeah. And that's right, what we peas. have. Okay, peas is a okay. vegetable. Oh, wow, chickpea. Okay, oh, cool. a lot of peas. Okay. Mustard. Hmm, okay. Um, oh my god, gummy bears. <laughs> oh, <the> <laughs> oh, okay. You know what's funny is I peas was one of the last things that I like. Pe I used to hate peas so much. Okay. So it's just funny that peas are here. I, I love peas now, but okay. Before they were like the last kind of standing vegetable that interesting. Took okay. A while. Yeah. So okay. So we have peas, chickpeas, mustard, gummy bears. I think the first thing I kind of thought of was, um, have you ever had those pretzel snacks that are honey mustard? Yeah. Mm -hmm. They're like in a sure. brown bag and I think it's like foil on the inside and they're like super yep. crunchy. Yep. So Lots I think I like would... MSG and A lot of MSG. There, yeah. So I think I would like make the peas and the chickpeas into like those crunchy kind of like, I don't know, like fried chip like yeah. texture. Then I think I would 
melt down the gummy bears okay. and make make them into like a syrup. Mix it with the mustard to make like a honey mustard. Ooh, then I dehydrate okay. it in a dehydrator yeah. somehow. Okay, <laughs> sure. And then blend that so it's like a powder. And then I would toss it with the fried chickpea and peas to make like the honey mustard pretzel esque things. But I with love chickpeas and peas. I love that. <laughs> That's where my head went. And that feels like a starter to me. Where what restaurant do we place? Oh that? shoot, yeah, I forgot <laughs> we were putting this in a restaurant. You know, I would put them in. Um, <laughs> I would put these in. Where would I put them? I would put them. I think I would put them in like a Safeway, honestly. In like, a Safeway, I'm yeah, sure. yeah, in a Safeway, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. I, in the in the chip section. Yeah, yeah, with the pretzels. <laughs> I love that gummy bear. I'm sorry, yeah. gummy bears is the dreaded card, and I love how coolly you accepted oh, yeah. the challenge yeah anything sweet i love so. <laughs> okay you okay. want to do one more round yeah let's do one more here i'll take from the middle oh yeah sure kind of mix it up let's All see right. okay so we have green beans okay more beans okay duck yeah. okay. wow okay bay leaf oh All wow right. and eel oh wow interesting okay um wow this feels like a i don't know this feels like a very family meal situation yeah um i honestly think i would make a stew out of this i feel like it's okay. kind of sad to do that with a duck because the duck is really like flavorful but yeah i'm thinking like a noodle soup stew situation ah. so like okay so like bay leaf i would put into like a stock with like soy sauce and ginger and maybe some star anise yeah and um like really classic taiwanese like beef noodle soup seasoning sure and then oh man and then i think i would put in the duck and just like let that just like slowly simmer and get really tender. Yeah, whole duck. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Why not? Yeah, it would be yeah. like a it would be like a duck noodle soup. Right, right, we'll call it a duck noodle soup. Right, okay. Yeah, whole duck. Okay. Um, and then let that get tender, and then we'll put in the beans later, just so they have some of their crunch, and then the eel. <laughs> the eel, I would. Oh, okay. It says you can fry it, so maybe, mm. maybe I would fry the eel. Until it's like really crunchy. Sure. And then when you have this like duck noodle soup with green bean situation, you can like sprinkle crunchy eel bits on top. Yeah. Maybe that's the dish. <laughs> I, I like it. I think that'd be nice actually. And you would serve this at, um, you know, you could serve it at McDonald's. Why not? Yeah, why not? <laughs> yeah. Let's just give them some ducks. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I love that. Well, thank you for playing along. Yeah, thank, thank you for you. joining us on Salt and Spy and Frankie. Yeah, thank you for having me. This was super fun. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from today's show and all of our episodes on our website, saltandspine.com. If you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening. We also love to see your ratings on Apple Podcasts. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart, and our producer, Cleo Worster. Our kitchen correspondent is Sarah Varney, and the Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is typically recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen offers digital and in-person classes for home cooks, and you can find out more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonimo, and the Civic Kitchen team, and to our friend Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. 